Hey, good morning. Good morning. Merry Christmas to you. Thank you for being here today. My name is Danny, and I am one of the pastors here at Kesed. And uh, I'm going to be sharing with you guys today as we kick off the Christmas portion of our Iconic series. Uh, before I do, I'm supposed to give an update as Erin, our beautiful announcement woman, uh, shared on the uh, kid. For those of you who are like, how inappropriate is that? She's my wife, so just chill out. Relax. Um, not that all of our announcement people aren't beautiful, but nobody's quite as beautiful as Aaron. So um, I want to give you an update. Wow that, wow, that was, yeah, yeah, she's here in the room, so thank you so much. Uh, Christmas toy drive for Kessa Kids, we are 65% uh, of the way there. We're halfway there in terms of time, so we're a little ahead of schedule, which has been great. Uh, I found out that a lot of people have just been going to Amazon, purchasing the gifts, and then sending them to our Amazon locker, and we have people waiting to uh, wrap those. So uh, we want to make sure and get everything that, uh, that we can and uh, for those kids to open here in a few weeks. And so if you haven't yet participated, we'd love to have you, or uh, if you want a, another round, of sending even something small, that would be great. But uh, it's been a really fun thing, and the, the children's ministry volunteers are really, really excited to, uh, to spend that uh, Sunday and Thursday opening gifts with those kids and refreshing everything in children. So it's going to be good. Amen? Amen. Okay. Uh, if you uh, don't know what the Iconic series is about, uh, what we're doing is we're looking at the Christian tradition. This is a long-standing Christian tradition of using something called iconography to help us better understand and teach other people about God. Uh, we've been uh, kind of illustrating this through the idea that today in the language that we have, if, we, if I asked you to describe who God is, you would use words like merciful, loving, kind, gentle, long-suffering, those kinds of things. But actually throughout really ancient culture, people didn't use words like that so much to describe him. They used words like refuge and mountain and shield and so forth. These are icons that describe who our God is. These are the pictures that you see uh, within stained glass windows, within uh, churches of old, within paintings of, of, of for, for, you know, hundreds of years ago, even a thousand years ago that people had when they were talking about and describing God. And we have lost some of that as a church. And so we, this whole series has been about us diving in and unpacking why that is so still important. Now, today's icon is the Christmas tree. And I think it's going to be really powerful where, when you really see where this tree came from and why it exists. Because not a lot of people realize that this is very much an icon, but it's an icon that represents the other. Uh, I'm going to, to illustrate what I mean by the other, I'm going to read perhaps one of the most sobering verses in the Bible. This is not a very Christmassy verse, so I'm just preparing you right now. But it is a very powerful one when it comes to how God thinks about the other, meaning someone different than you, someone that's on the outside, someone that's not, that's not included. Uh, the passage I'm going to read is in Matthew chapter 25. We're going to start in verse 31. This is titled in most Bibles as the final judgment. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, 
and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. So this is representing all the people in society that are outside of what we would probably consider norm or, or who we probably mostly do life with. And then it says that the people that God was talking to answered him. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And there these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Merry Christmas. <laughs> it's, not, it's not really a, a verse you'd use to open up a Christmas uh, a message, but it's actually a really powerful verse when you realize just how much it highlights. This is Jesus speaking, by the way. This isn't some writer speaking on behalf of God or prompted by the Holy Spirit. This is Jesus himself saying, this is how important the other is. This is how important it is for you to stop in the midst of your life and ask yourself who is on the outside that you, with your promptings, with your gifts, with your anointings are supposed to gather around. And it's just a really sobering passage. This is a passage about God standing in our midst and us missing him. For within those situations is the ministry that you and I as Christ followers are called to pick up. And I can't get it out of my mind. As I prepared this passage, I, I started asking myself, because that's where we need to start with all this stuff. God, who in my life is an other? Who in my life have I just looked past or over or even worse, right through? The question I begin to ask that I want to ask you now is, have you ever really considered this? That God is coming to us, to you in unexpected ways, in the unknown and the stranger, and that he wants you to create space. He wants me to create space for those people. There's a beautiful little not often told story that I believe illustrates so well what this might look like practically. Uh, we're we're going to use the man Moses. Moses, uh, most of us would consider him chosen. He's known. He is a, he is a, he's a big deal. Like, like everything in Moses' life is preordained by God. God is using him from the time he goes into the basket to the time that he's picked up by Pharaoh's daughter for the 40 years that he's educated in the land of Egypt. When the spirit comes upon him and he realizes that he's of the Hebrew people that the Egyptians have enslaved and that he rises up to protect one murders an Egyptian uh, slave driver and realizes what he's done and then escapes into the land of Midian for another 40 years. All of this is orchestrated by God. All of this is to create in this man eyes to see differently than anyone else on the planet. And when God shows up in a burning bush, he says, Moses, go back into Egypt. 
And I want you to tell Pharaoh this, and I want you to tell Pharaoh that. And step by step, situation by situation, Moses obeys God until the people of the Hebrew people are set free and they are out in the wilderness of Sinai, all spread throughout the plains. And Moses gets to spend that time reflecting on the fact that God led him to this place and to this space. He's, he's legit in all the ways. He is a man of faith. He is a man of doing it. He is a man of prayer. He is a man of following. He is a man of obedience. But somewhere in his story, right about here, there's suddenly this big space. God comes to Moses and he says, tear down the tabernacle that I've had you build. It's time to go. And so Moses tears down the tabernacle and then he waits for God to tell him where to go. Like, like, how do we survive in this desert that you're leading us into? Like, what are the ways that you've provided for us to, to, to be the children you've called us to be and rely on you wherever it is you've allowed us and called us to go? But God doesn't answer. There's this really weird just section of silence. And it's hard to pick up unless you really read carefully the passage that I'm going to read next. This is the passage when Moses realizes that God wants him to see an other. It's in Numbers 10, verse 29. And this is what it says. This is within this passage, right after God asked him to leave. Verse will be on the screen. Listen to what this guy does. And Moses said to Hobab, Hobab. Anybody, anybody know, know a Hobab? Because I've never even heard a sermon about this guy. But you're about to right now. He says to Hobab, the son of Reuel, the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law. That means this, is, this guy is Moses' brother-in-law. That means this is somebody who's outside the Hebrew people. And this is someone Moses has probably known for the last 40 years who happens to be with him in the, in the Sinai wilderness. And he says to him, we are settled, setting out for the place of which the Lord said, I will give it to you. Come with us and we will do good to you. For the Lord has promised good to Israel. But he, Hobab, said to him, I will not go. I will depart to my own land and to my kindred. And then Moses replies, please do not leave us. For you know where we should camp in the wilderness and you will serve as our eyes for us. And if you go with us, whatever good the Lord will do to us, the same will we do to you. So they, meaning Moses, the people the Hebrew people and Hobab and his tribe all set out from the Mount of the Lord three days journey. This is, this is a profound passage if you pause and recognize all of the things that brought Moses to this place. Like Moses hears from God directly. Like God starts bushes on fire and talks from them for Moses. He takes him up on mountains and, and, and puts him in rocks and covers his, his you know, his, with his hand and his glory passes by. Like God writes on tablets for Moses. Like he has direct access to the creator of all things. And then all of a sudden he's like, you know what I need? I need to ask Hobab where we should camp tonight. It's really odd. Until you realize that the silence that Moses must have felt, the the prayer that we must have missed, the space that is really hard to define, must have left Moses with a space to ask the question we all should be asking. I don't seem to know what God's doing right now. I wonder if the answer's already here. I wonder... I wonder if that's why Hobab was so eager to come along at the beginning. I know he's going to return home next week, but I wonder if he is the answer God is providing. But he's so, he's so other. Like he's so not Hebrew. 
and he's your brother-in-law. Like, how much are you going to get along with him, really? And you know he probably comes with, you know, father and and mother-in-law, too. That means wandering in the desert, can you imagine, with your father and mother-in-law? I have a solid desert-wandering father and mother-in-law. They're watching online right now, so that would be fine with me. (laughs) That would be fine with me. But the idea here is that Moses doesn't have his traditional answers, and so he decides to step outside of the traditional ways of looking at people as those who are chosen and those who belong and those who are not. And he leans in to this hobab. He decides to be a man, that one passage in Matthew 13, 9, he who has ears, let him hear. Moses is a man who hears spiritually. He sees spiritually. He knows that God doesn't always work the same way every day, exactly how we can predict. And that sometimes he leaves spaces that you are supposed to fill with people outside the normal routine. This is a very difficult thing to do, this thing that, that Moses did. This is a difficult thing to, to give up because at the end of the day, if you really want to break it down, a foreigner, a stranger, and an other is actually the one that guides the people of Israel to the promised land. Now Moses chose him, so he still gets a lot of credit. But this is the man who's like, we'll go around this mountain and, and camp here. And then we'll go over here because I know there's some water. And then we'll go over here because I know there's some, some resources and so forth and so forth and so forth. This is hard to do because if we're really honest, uh, I, I'll speak on behalf of myself. I don't always hear well the voice of God. And this is because um, I don't want to be uh, guided by other people. I want to be the one who guides myself and other people. I don't, I don't want anybody else to be in charge of at least my personal story. I want to make my choices. I want to make my, my victories. I want, I, want, I want credit. I want to know that the life that I have in so many ways is because of how hard I've worked and the decisions I've made. I want to guide me. And if we're all being honest, we all have a little version of this inside us. I want to guide me and I want to guide you. <laughs> if we're just being honest. Nobody wants to give up that kind of authority. And yet, if we want to be people who follow the mandate, the teaching of Jesus, we've got to stop and realize there's a whole bunch of people outside of my ability to see that actually have so, so much to offer, have so much to offer when it comes to guiding even us through our own lives. And so today, here's what I'd like to do. I want to give you a chance to try and reset your spiritual hearing, to practice listening in the ways God has been calling us to. And we're going to do that, practice our spiritual hearing, while listening to the origin story of Christmas trees. My hope is that you might notice often how the other was approached through spaces like the one we just learned about, and then apply or look for those spaces in your own life. Yes? Okay, so the Christmas tree. Uh, some of you might know uh, that, uh, that this originally was a pagan tradition. As a matter of fact, I had a few people come up after last service and tell me that, uh, that this particular message is, is going to be bothersome for them because they got rid of their Christmas tree years and years and years ago. And, and, and when I started the message by saying it's a pagan tradition, uh, they were like, oh, yeah, that's good. And by the time we were done, they knew they needed to probably go buy two or three more. So... That was a bummer. 
Um, like many pagan traditions, the exact birthplace of and meaning behind symbolic evergreen trees has been muddled in history. But historians have been able to at least somewhat identify the where and the why in a broad sense. They have been able to trace it, at the very least, to northern Europe where the forests were flush with evergreen trees, a lot like around here. Evergreens likely held a significant and special place in pagan cultures because they retained their color all throughout the winter months, whereas other trees shed their leaves and appeared like dead, gnarled things springing from the ground. Evergreen trees were a symbol that life was on its way. Uh, a professor of religious studies at the University of, of Sydney, Carol Cusack, says, Evergreens at midwinter festivals were traditional since the ancient world, signifying the victory of life and light over death and darkness. And so you need to understand that in the ancient world, uh, when, when there was any sort of heavy season, uh, your crops wouldn't grow. It was harder to go out and hunt for food. It was hard to keep your home warm. These seasons wouldn't just be like, oh, it's kind of depressing. These people didn't have seasonal depression. They had seasonal starvation. They weren't like sad, they were dead. When heavy winters came, like, like people lost lives. And so any time that they could find anything to remind them to keep going, to keep striving, to keep surviving, that they would cling to that. And they saw in these trees in the forest, the only ones that they never died. They just endured through the, sto the storm. And so they begin to perform rituals with them and bring them into their homes. They begin to remind each other of them. They begin to build entire festivals. They would pull huge trees into the center of town and dance and proclaim that, that the life of this tree uh, could be maybe the life of me. And it just was a thing that they did for thousands of years. And then the missionaries arrived. And if you do any mission work at all, my wife and I and our family did about a year of overseas mission work. The first thing you do is not show up with your plan. You show up and if you're any good at it or if God's called you to do it, generally speaking for a while, you just watch and listen. And I don't mean just physically, I mean spiritually. You listen to people's stories, you listen to their fears, you listen to their concerns, you try to get to know them inside their context, inside their space. They are the other and you are there to bring them into the house of God. When the first missionaries arrived, they observed everything I just told you about these people. Listening to the reasoning that they had for why they did things. And they may have asked questions. They may have thought like this. Okay, God has called me to love these people. We want these people to know the God of life. We want them to know about his everlasting love and restoration. And about the hope they can have in his return a lot like spring. I bet you we could use these trees. With all that in mind, these missionaries decided to put on a play, a very popular play it ended up being, with those elements that they saw the people already using for pagan worship. They taught the biblical narrative and how it begins and ends with a tree, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Genesis through Revelation, it all starts and stops with a tree. So since the German pagans, that area, already had trees that they were utilizing as part of their ceremonies, they wrote their medieval play around Adam and Eve using the same trees as props for the garden, the evergreen tree. Within this play, the paradise trees, those two trees, there were fir trees hung with apples, red and green. 
This is where we get the tradition of red and green ornaments on Christmas trees, all shaped generally like an apple. This is what they hung and the message that they shared with their tree. This and many other traditional pagan beliefs would coincide with the winter solstice. This wasn't just something they did one time. They started doing it every year during this dark and heavy season. The winter solstice, if you don't know, is the longest night and shortest day of the year. As a matter of fact, according to the Society of Ethnobiology, the 12-day period following the winter solstice was considered by pagan cultures to be the most dangerous time of the year. If there was a time you were going to starve or freeze to death, it would be from the winter solstice on to the next 12 days. This is because since they were the shortest and coldest, darkest days of the year, they were also the most likely days you could potentially starve or go without. Pagan myths went as far as to say that during those 12 days, Odin and the wild hunt would ride through the sky, concealed by dark storm clouds, ready to abduct anyone unfortunate enough to have failed to find a hiding place. That's a whole other kind of Santa right there. If you don't know who Odin is, he's this guy right here. Very dangerous man. <laughs> Some of you are like, I don't know how he has a picture of Odin. I don't get it. That's fine. That's fine. These fearful followers that believed in all this would cover their homes in aromatic plants and in the branches of pine and fir trees, smudging the walls with their resin as a protective measure. Now, again, as a missionary, we, you would say something like, we recognize that this is the most difficult time of the year for these people, the winter solstice. We believe that our God is the great comforter and bringer of joy, that he is the light of the world and deliverer of peace. Well, did you know that if we go back in time to the time of Jesus, the Western world was following the Julian calendar that Julius Caesar created in 45 BC. And in that calendar, December 25th was the winter solstice, the longest night and shortest day of the year. And Christianity discerned when they asked the question, what day should we celebrate the birth of Christ, the light of the world entering into the darkness? How about on the darkest, most dangerous day of the year? But wait, there's still more space to work with. Remember those 12 dangerous days? Christians of the time turned them to what we know as the 12 days of Christmas. <laughs> See, I don't know if you're putting all this together or not, but but people walked into another culture, saw these people as their, as, as their hobab, as their other, and allowed them to guide them on what would display probably better and probably even, I'm going to go as far as to say, probably even Holy Spirit driven, the proper way for us to set up a holy day to honor the birth of Christ. Some of you, you might be hearing this for the first time, but Jesus wasn't born on December 25th. But the Holy Spirit seems to have prompted through mission work and through existing Hobab cultures how this holiday would be celebrated forevermore. And he did it all based around existing pagan belief system. The tree you set up in your house was created by missionaries to teach people about Jesus using their existing cultures and ways. And that is profound. And so much of it has lost its power because we needed it to be something that, you know, somehow we, in our heads that, that, that happened, uh, you know, for some other reason. I mean, I mean we, can't, we can't pull in things from pagan cultures into our life. And it seems that the Holy Spirit's like, actually, you can. 
I don't know if you know this or not, but pagans don't get to control or, or uh, own all the trees. I'm pretty sure trees were God's idea in the first place. I'm pretty sure everything that pagans use in order to illustrate their belief in other worlds are powers put in place by God. And he's like, yeah, you can use that, I made it. This is like one of your children borrowing your tie and saying, I'm pretending to be a businessman. And then you push him down and you're like, how dare you? How dare you use this prop to create in your life something that doesn't exist? Or you could sit on the floor and you could actually engage with that child and talk about what they see in you that causes them to want to draw near, that what they see in you that causes them to want to mimic. And even in that situation, as they pretend to be little fathers or, or they pretend to be little mothers, you could lean in and say, what do you see about mom? What do you see about dad? What do you see about grandma? grandpa and so forth. And you could lean into their age and their development and their place and you could teach them something powerful. You don't have to prove to them that wearing a tie doesn't mean that they don't go to work and have a business. Do you have a business, Charlie? You're seven years old, do you? Then take off the tie. Don't you wear a tie till you have a business. <laughs> I'm getting passionate. I'm a little off the rails here, just a little bit. I think that's often what the church has done. It walks around looking for little boys and little girls in spiritual ties, right? And, and, and spiritual pantsuits. And we're like, no, 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 no. <laughs> One day maybe, but not right now. You're just a child. And then people are like, I don't think I wanna come over and play at your house anymore. And then we're confused why 90 some odd percent of churches are shrinking. It's because you're no fun. The church is not a good playmate. The church doesn't show up with people and sit in their stories. The church says, well, God's led me this way till now. Have I ever told you my burning bush story? <laughs> Every one of you has a burning bush story. I do too. We all have burning bush stories. It's like God's thing. You're not special. But we always lean into the burning bush story. I'm more interested in the time the bush just went out and you were like, here's my burning bush. And it's just like not even warm coal. And you're like, God's gonna talk to me from here. And God's like, actually, I'm creating some space for you because there's a woman out there that doesn't really fit in your culture. And she's gonna be a guide for you into what's next. We know some of this naturally. We know that if you want to reach um, addicts, the best people to do that are people who've struggled with addiction. If you want to reach anybody in the recovery system, the very best people to do that are people who struggle and have struggled in the past in the recovery system. If you want to reach church hurt people, the best thing to do is talk to other people who've been hurt by the church. God has been bringing Hobabs into his church for years and years and years and years. We're just the ones missing it because we keep filling the space and oftentimes, I think, setting bushes on fire ourselves and then saying, see what God did? There's just no voice coming out of it. We're supposed to be people who do this well. We're supposed to be people who understand. We're supposed to be like these Christian missionaries. These Christian missionaries found the traditions that already existed. They didn't have to start with Jesus to tell the story of Jesus. Which, by the way, Jesus didn't even start with Jesus. He kind of showed up with people where they were. Like, he didn't start with like, hi, I'm Jesus, I'm the Messiah, here's what we're gonna do. He's like, hey, Peter, you fish. Throw your net on the other side of the boat. Like, this is how he operated. Why aren't we still operating like him? Why are we instead destroying and replacing people's cultures? Why aren't we leaning into them so that they can guide us into even more understanding of who God is? 
and so be like the Messiah, showing up in their world? Why is it that he shows up in a, in a, in a, you know, a barn filled with animals, by the way, and this is like, this is like ancient barn. This isn't like clean barn. This is like ancient barn with ancient troughs, with ancient straw. This is not, I wouldn't want to have my wife give birth like in the cleanest of barns. And I've been in some pretty nice barns lately. This is not how he enters the world. He shows up as a Hobab himself, as an other, in order for all of us to feel like we belong. The placement of Christmas on the calendar, the winter solstice, the 12 days following it, the Christmas tree itself, these are all ways in which Christ following people chose not to miss what God was doing. And so offered a touchable picture of what it meant to decorate the darkness and so fulfill the loneliest of spaces with his presence. My question today is what if the uncomfortable spaces in your story And we all, I hope, are being prompted with some of them right now. What if those spaces are there because God is wanting you to lean into the other? What if he's not wanting you to lean in what you're comfortable with, what you know, and all the ways he's guided you out of your Egypt? What if he's not wanting you to create a new Egypt out in the wilderness of Sinai, but instead he's actually wanting to take you through a desert to the promised land, but you're not going to get there without guides. And so you're going to have to set down your pride and you're going to have to ask some people. You're going to have to lean into some relationships. You want to be more merciful? Go get a friend who's hard to love. Mm. Yeah. That's for few of you in the room. You want to be more gentle? Maybe, maybe put on new spiritual lenses in order to look at the spouse that God has blessed you with that you haven't been very patient with lately. You want humility in your life? Go spend time with your adult children and ask them how you could have been different. or how you could be different now. You want all this fruit of the spirit? Stop just reading it in the Bible. Actually go to work and sit with somebody and practice getting it out of the basket. I think most of us just pick the fruit of the spirit, put it in our little basket and then walk around like, I'm ready, Lord. And God's like, just leave that stuff at home. The real fruit is growing on the vines at work with that one employee who's just a pain in the butt or that boss who's just so arrogant. And yet God has called you to respect them and show up anyways. I can go on and on. I have these people in my life and it is not easy, but it is what we are all called to. What if the uncomfortable spaces are there so that you can see a Hobab differently? What if it's in the eyes of those who don't fit as well as we'd like that we can most clearly see Jesus looking back? she's into it. What if in the spaces of your journey, your trauma, your story, your experiences, God is trying to lead you somewhere filled with promise? And what if right now, spiritually speaking, with great respect, you are just circling the Sinai desert, hoping he'll provide another miracle when really the miracle's already walking in your life. You just don't want to admit that you're not going to be the one who's guiding it. That's my hope for us this holiday season, that we understand that God is blessing Kesed. It's great to hear that it's growing. It's great that all the, there's so many good things about it, but my greatest fear, and I think the very, the, the very 
the very hollowing out and destruction of this movement will be thinking that this is the movement. Be thinking that this is where the answers are, that, that this is somehow uh, uh, different than, than all the other beautiful spaces that God is working and moving. Our job is to come here, be convicted. Our job is to come here, be transformed, and then to go back out into the rain and love people who need it. But for us to do that, we've got to decide that we aren't the center of the world, that we don't have the answers, and that we're not the only people that God wants to use to guide his mission and bring his kingdom. I'm grateful that we can be a church that asks these questions. My hope is that, uh, that you uh, see your Christmas tree differently from now on, and that uh, you ask yourself, who is your Hobab? Who is that person in your life that you're supposed to lean into that has something to teach you? even if they're maybe not a believer, because God wants to do something special in your life and their life all together, bringing glory to him. Amen? Amen. Would you stand? We'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you uh, for spaces that we can just rest in, spaces that we can, um, we can ponder you. We can be challenged. We can disagree we can wrestle together, and most importantly, God, we could recognize that you use the meek, you use the humble, you use those of, of no power in order to, uh, to teach and to lead and to guide. May we, like you, show up in the lives of the other. May we, like you, lean into the stories of people around us. May we not always be the ones who need to teach, who need to lead. May we, we, may we be willing to sit and to listen and to learn. Thank you, God, for uh, just so many beautiful illustrations, so many ways in which you have shown us that you are the light in the darkness and everyone's darkness. May we continue to proclaim it, lifting you and your agenda above all else. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you all for coming. Merry Christmas. I'll see you next week.